the pilot that lasted zero days. This week, we dive into the truly absurd meeting where it was decided to reopen 102 Ave to vehicle traffic. Plus, whatever else we have time for. That might be a long one. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 210. If you go back, uh, you know, a year ago, so 40-ish episodes, you'll hear late June celebrations, accolades for city council for doing the uh, intensely spirited thing. And if you listen to the title of this episode, spoiler alert, this will not be that same type of episode. Last week, we were described as uncharacteristically positive about some stuff. That's what my co-founder and uh, our Taproot editor, Karen, described the way we talked about our our topics last week, Troy. I don't think this week we'll get the same description. Well, let's jump straight back into character, starting with the rapid fire segment. Silver Skate Festival wrapped up this week, the final festival to take place in Horlack Park before it closes for three years. The festival is moving to Laurier Park for a few years, and as compensation, the city has offered to clear-cut Horlack Park and use the wood for a massive fire sculpture. The festival officially declined the offer in a statement saying, quote, Horlack Park is a natural beauty and every effort should be made to preserve each and every mature tree in the park, end quote. Later that day, the city issued a press release saying simply, whoops. TransEd tested an emergency scenario on the Valley Line LRT last week, which saw emergency personnel near 51st Avenue and 75th Street for a simulated incident. The incident involved a cyclist and the train, but Deputy City Manager Adam Lachlan stressed that such a scenario shouldn't happen in reality because his plans ensure a high number of personal vehicles protect the cyclists from trains. With provincial changes leading to a stark decline in photo radar revenue, the city of Edmonton has become more creative in ways to make up the funding gap. Parking enforcement officers now carry a credit card transaction machine. Said the head of the Office of Traffic Safety, quote, our parking enforcement officers are service people too. We bring your tickets directly to your car and affix them to your windshield. Consider tipping 18% as a minimum, especially thinking about the required tip out to back office middle management. Honestly, even for decent service, it shouldn't be lower than 20%. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. Offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit-sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you're choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local non-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kazowski, and we love local here too at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. About eight months ago, or I don't know, maybe 30-ish episodes ago, we were jubilant, not really because of the decision that council made to close 102 Avenue to vehicle traffic, but more about the way the decision was made. The idea that council seemed to be taking a risk, it's the most Edmonton thing you can do, but also adapting and following city plan and setting a strong vision. That was very exciting, at least to me, and I was stoked about the future. I thought it was signaling a really positive direction that council was heading. And, you know, we've criticized this council in the past for being a little bit directionless, a little bit turned by the wind. And so it was very exciting to me. 
Mac, this week I was less excited. Yeah, I mean, the other context about when this happened, it was summer, it's warmer, and people are generally happier. But also we thought the LRT was going to open pretty imminently, right? We This was before we learned about, you know, the concrete pillars. And the additional concrete piers after that. Yeah, so, you know, the, you know, the train was constructed, they were testing it, it seemed like 102 was going to open, and this idea that it could be for, you know, pedestrians and cyclists and be a real active transportation corridor was pretty appealing. And so council said, this is the direction we're going to go. I presume they watched the video you made at the time, Troy, and it convinced them that this was the right decision to make. And they asked administration, you know, bring us back a bylaw to close the road because that's what we need to do in order to close the road. Somehow it didn't come back until now, several months later, almost a year later, we're finally getting, you know, this bylaw. And that's why it came up this week. And Troy, you and I have been talking about like what went on here and, and something you said really stood, stood out to me, which is that it seemed like it was set up to fail from the beginning. Mac, you know, you have young kids. If one of your young daughters came up to you and said, you know what, I have a lot of expertise in this field. I think we should have cake for dinner every night. Would you consider that a compelling argument? <laughs> well, if my six-month-old did it, it'd be pretty impressive. Uh, but no, I would need a little bit more evidence from my five-year-old for why we should have cake for dinner. City administration is the experts. City administration is the trusted authority that council has to trust. And, you know, for many ways, council has to work like this. Council can't be experts in everything. Right. But city administration has time and time again said, we don't recommend this. We don't want 102 Ave pedestrianization. And they've said, you know, as they are legally obliged to do, we'll follow council's direction on this. But the behavior of city administration has led me to believe that there is some aspect of this that was set up to fail from the beginning. And I think the first piece of evidence right there is just what you said. It is eight months later. In the discussion with counselors, administration said, you know, it'll take us a couple of weeks to prepare a bylaw amendment. Public hearing process and advertising periods is maybe another three weeks after that. But we'll come back quite quickly and we'll make sure that the road remains closed to traffic in the interim before this pilot project starts. Why indeed should it take eight months for this to come back, if not to make the pre-pilot seem like a failure? Yeah, I mean, maybe the charitable explanation here is like the road is closed already. What's the point of rushing a bylaw to come back and close it? But I feel like there's a bit more to it than that. It's probably more along the lines of it wasn't important to administration to, to do this pilot and to keep it closed because, as you say, they recommended against it then and, and now. And so, you know, if they're the ones driving the bus here, so to speak, why rush it? To understand that, I think we have to look at the other players here because administration is not alone. There are other power brokers in the space and they've risen to prominence. And I'm mm -hmm. referring, of course, to the DRC, the Downtown Recovery Coalition. When this came to council this week, there were two speakers in favor of the closure to vehicle traffic. They were both downtown residents who lived on 102F. And there were five speakers in opposition, all of them downtown business people, DRC adjacent people. Or members, or full members, yeah. Uh, in fact, the first speaker, and you, you'll know that they uh, organized speaker order, was Anand Pai, who's the executive director of NAOP, which call it developers, and he's a sitting member of the DRC steering committee. So to say that the DRC had their hands in speaking to council, I think is absolutely true and correct. These people are pretty important and these names are pretty important because one of the through line arguments that both administration and 
those members of the DRC and the downtown business community made was this was not a tenable closure for vehicles because this space doesn't have activation potential. This space was not activated in this interim period where a pilot hadn't started, where no bylaw had passed, and the road was just kind of in this nebulous gray area. There was no activation there, so they argued that is why we should not pass the bylaw and start this pilot to test. But there was money given for downtown activation. Taproot covered that. Yeah, the Downtown Vibrancy Strategy uh, funding program had about $5 million that it awarded to more than 50 projects over 2021 and 2022 to try to bring some vibrancy to downtown. The purpose of this was to support the downtown vibrancy strategy, you know, help downtown recover a little bit from the pandemic. And then just recently, the province, you know, contributed uh, some more money to that vibrancy fund. So some more money that, you know, that group will, the people that are in charge there of deciding who gets awarded money will get to look at and say, yeah, we're going to fund these projects as well. And that who decides who gets money, that's a really important point. It is an unelected collection of individuals. I believe it's four plus a couple city staff members. Uh, the individuals that are important to our story that uh, we're following through this through line are Punita McBrien of the Downtown Business Association, Chris Bizey of the Downtown Edmonton Community League, and Anand Pai of NAOP, the DRC, some lobbyist stuff, whatever hat he was wearing when he was sitting on that committee. Yeah. And, you know, to some extent, it's problematic, as we said before, that those are the people that get to decide because the downtown Edmonton Community League got a whole bunch of money. The downtown Business Association got a whole bunch of money. Uh, some of the things that Anand is involved in got a whole bunch of money. So they're kind of awarding themselves money, which is not great. But on the other hand, these are folks who have some expertise and some knowledge about the area. If you're going to fund vibrancy downtown, you want some events and activity to happen, it's pretty logical that the Downtown Business Association would be one of the organizations that would get that funding. But for the purposes of 102nd Avenue, it's probably more problematic for the people who get to hold the purse strings to then say there was no activation. Let's talk about that activation component, because... Why was that even a rubric criteria? It wasn't just the speakers saying this space hasn't been activated. Administration was in their expert opinion to council saying that in the ensuing gray area months, this space hasn't been activated. Therefore, we shouldn't proceed with the pilot. Now, first, I'll say if administration had done their due diligence and just brought back the bylaw promptly as council directed, then there wouldn't have ever been this gray area period to evaluate a pre-pilot. Right. Where did this rubric come from? Where did the need for activation happen? Council didn't pass a motion, say, bring back a bylaw amendment and make sure to evaluate it against some arbitrary criteria that you've self-developed in order to cause this to fail. No, they just said, bring back some bylaw amendments. Let's pass them because we've decided that this is a good idea. This arbitrary rubric that got added that was a huge component in council's decision not to pass this. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the report, right, for this bylaw, it does talk about the need to work with the DBA to activate the space. And, I mean, even just the inclusion in the report is pretty confounding, right? And Councillor Andrew Knack picked up on this and really pushed administration on this, asking why does pedestrianization require 
activation. I think this is something you and I, Troy, have both asked throughout this whole process as well. Like, why is it that we're going to close a road and make it for pedestrians and cyclists and other active transportation users? It must be activated. Why do we have to put picnic tables out there for people to sit on when we don't do that in other instances? When we have roads that are built for vehicles or, you know, whatever, there's not some special weird criteria for vehicles. It's just a road for cars. Why can't it just be a road for people? And I suppose it's worth at this point qualifying what we mean by activation and what administration means by activation. In this thing, it's what you talked about. These picnic tables, these businesses having pop-up patios, the things that you would expect, you know, on White Ave uh, during the summer. That's activation. It's people on the street engaging in activities. Or what I used to do, right? We're going to bring a bunch of food trucks and organize an event in this space or something along those lines. Something that, you know, is intended to bring more people to the space than would otherwise be there on a typical day. Yeah. And like you said, Councillor Andrenak bumped on this because cars don't activate spaces. They just move through. Why shouldn't it be the case that pedestrians can simply move through a space and not right. necessarily activate it. And he brought up the salient point that this was the only east-west corridor to connect a bunch of pedestrian spaces. So Churchill Square, downtown, uh, 104 Ave, which is certainly going to be a candidate for pedestrianization in the future, and the future Warehouse Park, which will be an Edmonton-style central park, a huge, massive downtown pedestrian space that would have been directly connected to Churchill Square and the downtown by this pedestrian space. It would have been a great spoke connector. Mm -hmm. And Adam Lachlan, uh, the deputy city manager in charge of infrastructure, responded not really with a reason, but just that it does. It is a requirement. And he went on to say that council had directed administration to develop a report on pedestrianization and how the city could create more pedestrian spaces downtown to uh, create that more vibrant space like cities across the world are doing with pedestrianizations downtown. Yeah. And he said in no ambiguous terms, 102 Ave will not be included in this. We do not recommend this for pedestrianization because it doesn't have activation. And Adrianak really pushed on this and he didn't get an answer. And the only thing I can take away from that is that city administration has set policy that pedestrianization requires activation. But policy is set by council, not administration. Yeah, or even if there was some sort of administrative policy, there would be something that they could refer to, something that would be written down, a procedure, something that makes it clear that this is the way we do this. But to our knowledge, none of that exists. The criteria by which we evaluate things can influence the results. You know, you heard Mike Nickel talk about it on his terms of counsel. Metrics, targets, outcomes. Show me the data to make evidence-based decisions. And counsel loves making evidence-based decisions. Administration has learned that. So if administration wants to be enterprising and push their way through, then setting the criteria, setting the framework properly is critically important. For example, if it was an administrative end goal, speculatively, that there wouldn't be any permanent pedestrian closures. They would be seasonal, like we do with active transportation lanes that had been developed during COVID. Mm -hmm. If they wanted those seasonal closures, well then, activation potential in summer months, that's an important criteria because somewhere that is seasonally active, somewhere that is popular in summer, somewhere like Alfresco downtown with the market that closes on weekends on 104, that type of closure is strongly supported by activation potential. You know, these big harumphs and then cars take over the rest of the time. So if that is set as a criteria, the only end result given Edmonton's winters, given Edmonton's built form, tends to be seasonal closure. 
it's set up to get the desired outcome. Which in this case is more cars get to use the space. More cars get to use the space. Councillor Cartmel did ask about, you know, the seasonality idea and if maybe we just closed it in the summer months and left it open in to vehicles in the winter months. And, you know, one of the residents who spoke, I think, had a really smart take on that, which is that you almost need it more in the winter months because let's say you're a cyclist in your commuting, you're probably going to go somewhere inside when it's cold. And so being able to get to, say, the Edmonton Public Library in a, in a safer way down 102nd Avenue without vehicles is almost more important in the winter than it is in the summer. And this is where activation, I think, bumps onto safety a little bit, right? We heard Councillor Cartmel say, a bunch of things. Uh, one that stood out in particular. He said, right now, today, walking through that corridor is not pleasant. It is not a pleasant experience. There's not eyes. There's not energy. There's not storefronts. There's not doors on the exterior walls of those buildings. And I think there's some truth to what he's saying. It's not the most pleasant experience to walk through there. There are no storefronts really anymore. There aren't entrances and doors with very few exceptions and usually on either end of the proposed closure area. So there's the public library on one and the YMCA, you know, on the other. And yet, Troy, I'm someone who walks down that avenue four times a day, most weekdays. And the reason that I still walk down that avenue versus going to, say, Jasper Avenue or 103rd Avenue is because it feels so much safer to not be walking next to four lanes of traffic or even just one lane of traffic. When there are vehicles that have been in that area because the closer signs have been, barricades have been removed or whatever, you're just in that heightened sense of alert as a pedestrian and probably as a cyclist because you don't know what's happening here with these vehicles, right? It's a much safer experience to not have to worry about where the cars are around you. And yet we heard time and time again in this discussion that somehow having vehicles there will make it safer. Yeah, we heard a lot of arguments. Most of the arguments we heard were truly nonsensical. They had very little basis in reality. But I wanted to bump specifically on that idea of activation being in conflict with travel safety. Because Councillor Tim Cartmel, who I didn't expect to be an ally in this argument, did highlight that while it is not a great place to walk, he mm -hmm. did concede that right now this space is effective for one thing, and that's cycling. It is a great cycling route right now. And he conceded that point, right? that it was very good for that use. Now, of course, some of the speakers uh, from the Downtown Business Association and from the Downtown Business community highlighted that the cycle track actually struggled for activation because, you know, you can't really set up farmer's market stalls with bikes whizzing past. And, you know, that's a reasonable point. It's difficult to use that space because it is being used as a transportation corridor. But in that same vein, we've acknowledged that we have a space that is effective at moving people in a way that nowhere else in our city is effective at moving people. And the downside is that it's so effective at doing so that using it for a different use is impossible. And I struggle to see why that is an argument. If they're arguing that this is so effective as a cycling corridor and we just passed a $100 million bike plan to build new infrastructure to make cycling effective, and we have for free the best cycling infrastructure in the city, why would we throw that away? Because we can't use this space for markets. It doesn't make sense as an argument unless you accept the premise that the activation, that the vibrancy is a bit of a red herring. It's not really useful in terms of the discussion. 
And I think this was best highlighted by Aaron Paquette's comments, who bumped on the end result, the fundamental question. And he asked, why is it that when this is a roadway, it is by default accepted, but when it is a pedestrian path, when it is a cyclist path, it requires additional criteria. It requires activation. It requires it to prove itself. There was no true answer to that. He put it to the speakers. You say that cars won't impact safety. How many collisions with pedestrians are required? How many cars moving through is it required to say that this is valuable? He put it to the speakers to give metrics for what does the success look like? And none of the speakers were able to provide it because what we're fighting for here is not for anything in particular. It's not for something. It is for status quo and to maintain what exists there. Yeah, we're not arguing that we need this close so we can activate it. I think to say that we leave it as is also isn't exactly what I would say is what is needed for that space. I mean, if it's close to to vehicles and it's a pedestrian corridor, there are examples of other bollards and, you know, uh, infrastructure around the city, including around Churchill Square, including probably that city councilors walk by every single day to get into City Hall that could be used on that street rather than those, you know, ridiculous uh, red and black, orange and black construction barricades that don't really do anything. Like we could have kept it closed, improved the nature of that closure slightly without having to do all of this activation stuff. I think this gets us to the crux of what happened here. Because the arguments that the speakers made in opposition of this closure were things like, we need this street for egress access to our parkades. Of course, they don't. The parkades have several access. We need this for safety. As if cars make anyone more safe. We know that doesn't have any basis in reality, not for eyes on the street and not for physical safety. Right. They said things like, we need it for business attendance and to get people to our businesses. And there's no parking on this street. Administration, by their own admission, said during peak hours to make a turn off of this street, for example, to access parking, would take 18 minutes. <laughs> Why would any driver choose a route that has no parking, no destination, and takes 18 minutes to get to the destination over choosing one block over in either direction that takes 30 seconds to get to the destination. It's absurd to suggest that it was necessary, and that absurdity was clear in council. And yet, council opted to agree with these speakers. Is it because council has no coherent thought and council is unable to make reasonable decisions? No, that's absolutely not the case. The case here seems to be that the DRC played the game better than anyone else at the table. It does feel like there is a lack of an effective counter organization to this DRC camp. They had their speakers there. They had them organized. They had their talking points ready to go. They've as you have pointed out, infiltrated some of the decision-making processes that are happening around this kind of thing. And it really felt like council just sort of rolled over to that input and really kind of went along with what the, the speakers who were in opposition to this were saying. Is it because they were outnumbered? You know, they, they outnumbered the, the residents who were there speaking? Or is it that there isn't a strong enough consistent voice to 
remind city council and city administration that, look, you've already agreed on the city plan and all of these other related decisions that you've made along the way. Why would you relitigate that now? Why would you go backwards on those sorts of things? I got to say on that point, I was exceptionally disappointed to not hear either Tim Cartmel nor Sarah Hamilton speak up. She had spoken to the media about council relitigating past decisions. Tim Cartmel was talking about meetings dragging on and on because council reopening past business. Well, this was the very definition of reopening past business. This delayed, they had to extend orders to deal with this item and yet silence from the two. I do want to put one additional addendum on here because we're slagging on council as a whole organization. But at the end of the day, there was only one vote that changed the result of this. And that was Joanne Wright from Ward 12. She switched. The up-down vote on maintaining this closure, it was 7-5, but Councillor Jans was absent at the time because he uh, had to go pick up his child. I think based on his past voting record and his full-throated support of this, we could count him as probably a 6. Yeah. The only person that flipped from when this was a 7-6 in favor eight months ago was Councillor Joanne Wright. Why, what was her rationale? Why did she vote against it now? You know, it's hard to track. She had made up her mind pretty early in the meeting. And I think it all comes down to, basically, she saw what the pilot was right now, the quote-unquote pilot. The pre-pilot. Yeah, she saw that in eight months, nothing material happened with this roadway. And, you know, she was a flip vote back eight months ago. We didn't necessarily expect her to support it, but she did because she's like, you know what? We should try this. We should see what happens. And this, this is the critical piece Because for everyone involved, for even the speakers speaking in opposition, this came up where the speakers opposing this have said, this is already the pilot project. Everyone in the room seemed to think that the pilot had already started. And for Councillor Joanne Wright, the pilot had. And the only person organizing that pilot was city administration by dragging their heels. Unfortunately, in this case, it seems like we've got a little bit of a scapegoat, right? You heard this in some of the councillors' comments as well, which is that the train was supposed to be open and it's not open. We heard again and again that we didn't actually get to test what this was going to look like the way it was originally designed. And I don't know why we need to do that necessarily. I don't know why we can't just look at the evidence that's in front of us, which is that this was closed for a long time. Life went on. People got around it. A a little bit of critical thought, even just a little bit of critical thought will, I think, lead you to a conclusion that is the businesses that have closed around the downtown and along that stretch had much less to do with this lane being closed to traffic than with COVID and all of the other pressures that have been facing on top of businesses in the last few years. So it's really disappointing that this decision is the decision that was made, that it will reopen to vehicles. I suspect we'll see cars on there, Troy, more quickly than the eight months it took for this bylaw to come back to council. But at the end of the day, I'm also feeling like maybe this isn't the biggest problem here in that I would love for this to stay closed. I feel safer commuting downtown along 102nd Avenue with no cars. I think the right decision here for the future would have been to keep this closed to vehicles. And yet, to me, the bigger problem here is that there doesn't appear to be any through line in decision making that city council is making and that they're happy to relitigate things when it suits them. And that there's no, you know, coherence in in the, the sort of things that come forward and the way that they discuss them, you know, a few months later. It, it really makes me concerned about some of the other upcoming important decisions that we know are going to be in front of us in the, in the next few months. I'm really happy you brought that up because, you know, I've been 
accused of sour grapes on this. And quite honestly, Mac, after spending the entire episode talking about this, (laughs) it really doesn't matter that much, to be honest. 102F certainly is safer and it's going to be less safe with cars. But are cars going to choose to use this street? No, probably not. I mentioned the 18 minutes thing. It's not a good road to drive on. Now, are they going to park in the bike lane? Sure. And I hope we get enforcement. Maybe we'll get flex bollards on that. Yeah. But the actual effect of this, no, it's not going to save business. It's not going to really hurt business either. It's not going to affect very much. The ambition of this, the idea that we had the beginnings of a contiguous, connected downtown, that was exciting. But Warehouse Park isn't going to be done for a while. 104th Street is not pedestrianized. So maybe we do those things first and then relitigate 102 Ave later. The actual impact of this decision right now, it's not very high, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, as a daily user, it it feels a little uncomfortable knowing that I'm going to have to contend with cars there now as well. Like I said, there's a reason I go down this avenue more frequently. You know, Councilor Cartmel did talk a little bit about the idea that we, we, we could close this road in the future and that we've closed other roads, right? And he cited some examples. So 102nd A Avenue, I think it was, in front of City Hall, the one that sort of bisected City Hall with Churchill Square. We did close that. 103rd Street at Ice District, we did close that. There's lots of other examples. And granted, none of those are easy. None of them happened quickly. But I think what you're getting at with the, the idea that we will have this Central Warehouse Park and that, you know, there's future opportunities, it's it's a possibility. Council did talk about sort of future possibility a little bit. And and I don't buy one of the things they said, which is that, you know, we could look at uh, a, another pedestrian route downtown that connects the east to west. There isn't really another one downtown that will work. 102nd Avenue is the one because you're not going to do anything with Jasper Avenue and you're not going to do anything with 103rd Avenue or 104th Avenue in the same way that this could be that pedestrian active transportation connection route that you're talking about. So that felt a little disingenuous from city council when that comment was made. What they did end up deciding as a, as a sort of next step is that they're going to get a report back six months after the LRT opens, whenever that eventually happens. So 2027. <laughs> Hopefully before the warehouse park opens with some information about the safety and the interactions and the things that have happened on 102nd Avenue once the LRT is open. And that passed 10 to 2 with just Councillors Principe and Rice opposed. This report, if it was delivered um, successfully, is a pretty exciting report. It tracks, you know, vehicle usage, numbers of pedestrian, numbers of cyclists, near misses and uh, things like that. Uh, unfortunately, thinking critically about it, what exactly is a near miss and how would administration ever begin to track that? Indeed. I think the ambition of this request is much higher than what we're going to see from it. And I think given the history, we're going to see the rubric reflect a decision that administrators and perhaps those who are lobbying administrators effectively want to see. But you know, administration isn't against pedestrian corridors by and large, uh, because Four and a half more million dollars were given to the underground pedway to 103A Avenue. Yeah, this is that pedway that will connect Churchill LRT with the station lands if that ever gets off the ground. Last month, council awarded the sole source agreement for this to LEDCOR, who's you know working on the station lands development. It was argued that they were the best suited to do this because they're already you know doing the the construction right there, so they could be the the best place to work on this pedway. And now, without much debate at all. 
Council voted unanimously to approve a $4.5 million increase, uh, which is being blamed on inflationary pressures and revised cost estimates. And Postmedia reported that councillors they spoke to just said that simply they weren't surprised, and so they just approved it. So that brings the total for this Pedway up to $31 million. Mac, I'm excited to visit this Pedway just because I don't think I've ever been in a $31 million Pedway before. It's Oh, yeah. Who knows what kind of fancy things will be inside this Pedway? I mean, maybe there will be public washrooms with toilet attendants and those little towels and, you know, spritzes of potpourri. High class. Or at least not floods that linger on the floor for days on end without any sort of sign that anyone's doing anything about it. I'm looking at you, Pedway, between Churchill LRT Station and Edmonton City Centre. Of course, we've got to up the funding for this podcast episode just a little bit right off the end, just like Edmonton City Council did, and tell you about the Edmonton Community Foundation, or more specifically, the Well Endowed podcast produced by them. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Lisa Pruden, and it explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. The Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds, and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can subscribe at thewelleendowedpodcast.com. Mac, we have laid our sour grapes out on the table. We've let them ferment. We're going to go get drunk on the fermented grape wine tonight. (laughs) And next week, I'm sure we'll be happy-go-lucky, out-of-character podcast hosts once again. Well, that's up to you, City Council. Let's see what you do. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.